Hey guys, it's me again. Yep, I'm back. I apologize for the huge lapse between episodes. Inevitably, there are a couple of times a year where work and family schedules get pretty hectic and make podcasting a pretty tough side gig to keep up with. But on top of that, Texas weather, simply put, is what it is, which could mean 80 degrees on a Sunday with a drop to 30 by noon on Monday, and then back up to 70 by Wednesday only to drop back down again by Thursday. It's enough to throw the sinuses into a complete tailspin, which doesn't exactly make for a soothing podcasting voice. That being said, let me add another apology to the one I've just made for any excessive vocal fry or other vocal anomalies you might hear from me in this episode, and possibly even the next. I'm on the men for now, but you never know what tomorrow might bring. Before we go any further, though, I have some great big shout-outs for my first Patreon members, Laura Miller and Lisa Ryan. Laura and Lisa, I hope you enjoyed the first bonus episode of Lone Star Law and Disorder. Don't worry, another episode is on its way. Bonus and mini-episodes called The Little Lone Star Files are available exclusively for Patreon members. If any of my listeners are interested in podcast merch, access to my research materials, bonus mini-episodes, all the way up to being listed as an official sponsor of the show on either a temporary or more long-term basis, just go to www.patreon.com and become a patron of the show. And speaking of sponsors, Sentry On-Site Security and Private Investigations continues to make this show possible. Their private investigations division is headed up by a noteworthy retired Texas Ranger with a wealth of experience in criminal investigations, such as blood spatter analysis. And now, their experience is available to you, the public, for investigations ranging from small-scale personal interests to large-scale corporate investigations. And as a loyal listener, you can get 10% off their PI services. But in order to do so, you have to tell them who sent you. Just visit their website at www.sostx.com or call 800-936-3596. And now, without further ado, let's do this damn thing. Take it away, Amelia. Hello, listeners. No, you have not tuned into Case File by accident. This is Lone Star Law and Disorder. My name is Amelia. I'm from the Mornington Peninsula just outside of Melbourne in Australia. The following podcast contains strong language and graphic descriptions of violence. It is definitely not suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. In other words, don't say she didn't warn you. Having been born and raised in the South, with the majority of my family in the North, I think I'm fairly qualified to talk with you all about the differences between the two. One of the more pleasant differences being that good old Southern hospitality. It's not a myth, folks. The South is a place where family and faith and manners reign supreme. Now you won't find as much of it in the hustle and bustle of the larger metropolitan areas anymore. But in the smaller rural communities, it's alive and well and mandatory. From the moment they're old enough to speak, children are taught to say yes ma'am and no sir, please and thank you, and excuse or pardon me. Going without is not an option. Men and boys should always open the door for a lady. It's not considered old-fashioned or patronizing down here. It's the rules. 
A good Southern child is taught to respect their elders. And that includes someone else's mama yelling at you to get down off that thing. Any Southern child who's raised up right refers to any adult as Miss or Mr., even if calling them by their first name. Southerners will insist on it. But it's not just the parents in small-town Southern communities that take responsibility for continuing this Southern staple. Everybody is looking out for everybody. And everybody is paying attention to and watching out for your kids, whether you like it or not. Because after all, every good Southerner knows that it takes a village. You've heard the old saying, right? It takes a village to raise a child. It's actually an old African proverb that means an entire community of people protect and interact with the children of the community to help keep them safe and to help them grow. Back then, those villages consisted largely of extended family members. But hell, the same could be said about the South. Southern parents love to refer to their best friends as aunts and uncles when referencing them to their own children. So you end up with a whole community full of surrogate aunts and uncles and grandparents and coaches who are probably your history or economics teachers who are sure to help you keep your kids in line. And you can bet you're behind that almost any adult will call out someone else's kid if they see them doing wrong. Don't think they won't. It's not uncommon to hear a don't talk to your mama like that from a complete stranger at the grocery store. And any small-town Southern child knows they better listen, too, blood relation or not, or run the risk of their own parents finding out. Other adults in a small Southern community won't hesitate to let you know if your child's manners aren't up to par, or if they're somewhere that they're not supposed to be. Because everyone in a small Southern community knows that it takes a village. It's not something you appreciate as a child. Trust me. But as an adult with three young kids, I have to admit, I appreciate the backup sometimes. Not all the time, but most of the time. I'm not all-knowing. I can't be everywhere at one time, and I don't actually have eyes in the back of my head. But don't go leaking that info to my kids now, though. Our community, our village, plays such an important part in our children's lives, in their sense of safety and security, their sense of belonging, in mentoring children as they grow to find out their own identities and purpose, and to hopefully one day become a successful, productive member of that same society. We can't always control exactly who lives in our village or exactly what our village looks like. But that's why the communication between its members is so important. It takes the village to raise the child. But what about when the village fails the child? When the people in the village fail to see, fail to speak, and fail to act in a child's best interest? When a child doesn't just fall through the cracks, but into the gaping hole that somehow the people of the village failed to even notice. Or did they? Candace Alexander was just 12 years old when she used crystal meth for the first time. She was only 15 years old when she was found dead in her home of an apparent meth overdose. There was no public outrage at her death, no shock and awe. She was buried after a small service with a simple marker at her grave. And then the world moved on. The truth and the gravity of the circumstances that led to her death wouldn't be realized for another six months and wouldn't be made public for another two years. Only then would come the public outrage, the shock and the awe, and the realization Candace's village had failed her in the worst way. Living in a small town Southern community where everybody knows everybody 
and everyone knows everything, but somehow no one knew anything? Well, I'm sure for kids like Candace, it can feel like there's no village at all. I'm Krista, and you're listening to Episode 12 of Lone Star Law and Disorder. The drug itself, crystal meth, is a form of methamphetamine, which is a synthesized form of the drug amphetamine. And it all started with one little plant. The Chinese ephedra plant had been used medicinally for thousands of years as a stimulant and for treatment of other various conditions. In the late 1880s, a Japanese scientist figured out how to extract the stimulant property of the plant, ephedrine. It has similar effects on the body as adrenaline, which is a naturally occurring hormone that's released by the body in response to conditions of stress or excitement. But the plant was too scarce to share with the world. Several years later, however, a German scientist discovered a way to synthesize a substance similar to ephedrine in a lab and developed the first amphetamines. By 1893, Japanese chemists had developed another substitute that was even more potent and easier to make. And in 1919, they had created the first crystallized methamphetamine that was even stronger and purer than regular methamphetamine. Hence the name, crystal meth. It could be easily dissolved for injection and could also be smoked. By 1920 and into the 30s, methamphetamine was being used clinically to treat conditions like narcolepsy and asthma and even simple nasal congestion. It was introduced on the world stage during World War II when it was given to soldiers to help combat fatigue and to help keep them awake and alert and ready for battle. It was given in even higher doses to Japanese kamikaze pilots just before their suicide missions. After the war, the Japanese had huge stockpiles of the drug remaining, so they dispensed it to the civilian population, which led to widespread abuse and addiction. The abuse spread to Guam, and from there to the U.S. West Coast. By the 1950s, methamphetamines were being regularly prescribed by doctors as a diet aid. It was also being used non-medically by college students, athletes, and truck drivers alike for increased energy and performance. By 1967, there were 31 million prescriptions for methamphetamine in the U.S. alone, and abuse of the drug had begun to reach epidemic proportions. It was becoming more and more evident that methamphetamine-based stimulants had some pretty concerning side effects, such as paranoia and delusions, an abnormal heartbeat, even heart failure among regular users and addicts. So in the 1970s, the U.S. government decided to crack down on the use of methamphetamine without a prescription. Under the Controlled Substances Act, they imposed strict control on phenyl-2-propane, a chemical necessary for producing meth. But addicts and manufacturers alike quickly figured out a way around those restrictions through the use of ephedrine and pseudoephedrine which was much less regulated and that they found to be even better. So in the 1980s, the government imposed even tighter restrictions on ephedrine and pseudoephedrine in order to curb the growing number of illegal meth labs that were popping up in California and throughout the Midwest. But pharmaceutical companies began to fight back and demanded that pseudoephedrine should be allowed to remain in over-the-counter cold and flu meds without a prescription. Meth cooks eventually found a way to extract the pseudoephedrine from the over-the-counter meds by developing new ways of cooking meth, resulting in a stronger drug than ever before. Today's crystal meth is more likely to cause addiction even more quickly than any other form. A large number of meth users have reported being hooked after only their first try. 
When injected or smoked, the chemical makeup of crystal meth allows it to enter the bloodstream with ease and quickly penetrate the blood-brain barrier. Now, the blood-brain barrier is like a filtering process for the capillaries that carry blood to the brain and spinal cord tissue that blocks the passage of certain substances. Think of it like a wall that separates the blood circulating throughout the body from the brain. Only the wall is full of teeny tiny little holes that allow only certain molecules to pass through them, kind of like a strainer, for lack of better words. Its function is to protect the brain from harmful substances that may injure the brain, and it protects the brain from the hormones and neurotransmitters in the rest of the body. But it's no match for crystal meth. Once it passes that barrier, the brain is triggered to drop massive releases of dopamine and norepinephrine. And what follows is a powerful rush of euphoria, that over-the-top feeling you should really only have once you've just finished the newest roller coaster at an amusement park, or survived your first bungee jump, or even won a big unexpected award. The immediate rush is typically followed by a longer period of those effects, like having increased energy and productivity and feeling invincible, like feeling 10 foot tall and bulletproof. That powerful rush can cause many to become hooked right from the start. But it's those intense effects that make crystal meth one of the most dangerous, highly addictive drugs out there, and one of the hardest drug addictions to treat. And the potential for severe physical, psychological, and social consequences is grave. See, once all those good feelings start to fade, they fade fast. After about 24 hours, users may begin to experience extreme anxiety, confusion, paranoia, hallucinations, and sometimes even suicidal thoughts. And they may begin to experience a sudden and overwhelming sense of exhaustion and fatigue, accompanied by painful headaches and nausea and other body aches and pains. And that's just the crash. The hangover, they say, is worse. People often end up using again, and fairly quickly, just to avoid those feelings. And so the cycle continues. The problem is, after only a few uses, the same hit doesn't have the same effect. And it becomes harder and harder to get the same rush, and eventually to experience any pleasure at all, often leading to binges to try to keep the high going. Users will stay up for days not eating, not sleeping, just using. They become paranoid and delusional and often volatile until the body eventually crashes and shuts down. And let's face it, it just turns people into assholes. In his 1965 thesis, Dr. David Smith of California studied the effects of meth use on caged mice, which are normally docile and peaceful and social enough to groom one another. But a caged mouse on meth, he discovered, is a totally different creature. The mice who were administered meth began to interpret the grooming behaviors of the other mice as a threatening attack, usually prompting a violent, often fatal fight. Chronic meth use can cause irreversible brain damage in a relatively short amount of time. It can rot teeth and nasal passages and sinus cavities. It can cause lesions to form on the skin from excessive itching and picking. It can permanently damage blood vessels in the brain, making users more prone to stroke, heart attack, tremors, and convulsions, as well as lung, liver, and kidney damage. Simply the act of making crystal meth is enough to kill you, especially if using the red phosphorus method. The main ingredients are Sudafed and a handful of highly explosive chemicals like Drano, acetone that you would find in nail polish remover, muriatic acid, and iodine crystals. The red phosphorus itself is particularly dangerous because when it burns, it becomes a lethal odorless nerve gas. Now, at the time of Candace's death in 2003, Angelina County had been dubbed the meth capital of Texas. 
Only a year later, Texas Monthly Magazine would publish an article titled Life and Meth. And that article discussed the arrival of this cheap homemade speed to East Texas and how it had torn countless families apart and turned kids into addicts. The article revealed that between 1994 and 2004, the Deep East Texas Regional Narcotics Trafficking Task Force tracked down more than 350 labs in the Piney Woods alone. So perhaps that's why it was so easy to dismiss Candace's death as just another symptom of this dirty epidemic that was plaguing the community. Perhaps in a small way, it was. But it was so much more than just that. Candace Shanae Alexander, or Candy as she was known to her friends and family, was born on October 6, 1987. She was the second of three daughters born to Rebecca, or Becky, Alexander. Becky had begun using drugs when the girls were still very young, along with their father, Kester Alexander. Their mother eventually left Kester and took the girls with her. They moved around from trailer park to trailer park, living with a mixture of family and friends and very little stability. Candy's sister Tiffany remembers this and remembers their mother using drugs, even from that early in age. I'm Tiffany Alexander. I am Candace's youngest sister. Um, my mom um, apparently has always done drugs. Things stayed pretty rocky for a long time. But by around the year 2000, they seemed to have smoothed themselves out a little and seemed almost as they should be. Almost. My mom was a good mom when I was 10. And we were living in my grandma's trailer park. And life was good. It was just me, her, and Candace. And my mom was working at Golden Corral. And, you know, I was going to Anderson. And my sister was going to Lufkin Middle School. So she would have been, like, 12. It seems like the real trouble started when a man by the name of Johnny Lee walked through the front door and into their lives. And once he did, he was there to stay. You know, life was, I mean, life was good. She was being a mom. She was, supposed, she was doing what she was supposed to do. And one day, Johnny Lee shows up on her doorstep, and they get together, and um, it went downhill from then. Johnny Franklin Lee was a four-time convicted felon who had already been to prison several times for various offenses, primarily related to manufacturing and distribution of a controlled substance, specifically crystal meth. Regardless of the consequences, Johnny continued to make his living by making and selling crystal meth. And he supported his new family this way. It was Johnny Lee who introduced Candy to her first taste of crystal meth at only the age of 12, just as he had Candy's sister before her. Life before Johnny Lee hadn't exactly been great, but it had never been this bad either. No matter how you looked at him, Johnny Lee was just an all-around bad guy. People were scared of Johnny Lee, and that included Candy, and she had good reason. You see, introducing Candy to meth at such a young age wasn't just for shits and giggles. Johnny Lee had ulterior motives. That's probably around the time when the sexual abuse began. Who knows when the physical abuse started, but it had to have been going on for some time. In 1986, only a year before Candy was born, 
Becky had a son removed from her at only six months old. A bone scan at a local hospital revealed multiple fractures in various stages of healing to the tibia and femur of both legs and to the ribs. Now, unless you fall down a flight of steps while holding that baby, that doesn't happen by accident, folks. The boy was also blind and weighed only six pounds. To give you some perspective, the average healthy six-month-old baby boy weighs around 17 pounds. Becky's six-month-old son weighed less than an average newborn. So you may call it speculation if you like, but in my professional experience, someone who's capable of that type of abuse and neglect of an infant is capable of far worse to a young child or adolescent. Johnny and Becky Lee bounced the family around from home to home, exposing them to more than their fair share of unseemly environments and unsanitary conditions. Their home was wide open to the kind of shady characters that would take advantage of them in any way that they could. Not to mention the dangers posed to them by simply operating a meth lab out of the home. So Candy never took any of her friends to her house. She didn't even let them meet Johnny or Becky if she could help it. Not even some of her closest friends knew what was really going on at home. She kept that part of her life a secret. But even despite that, she always tried to make sure that Tiffany was taken care of. I used to always follow her around, trying to be with her all the time. And we used to fight over that because she's like, oh, you know, like a bigger sister doesn't want her younger sister there. But I was going to be there or I was going to tell on her. <laughs> she was very loving. She, um... She was nurturing. She was the mother that I didn't have. She, you know, she made sure I ate, did my schoolwork, and took baths, and made sure I wasn't running off with little boys because I wanted to, I wanted, I don't know, you know, I wanted to do what I wanted to do. <laughs> and I don't know, she's just, she's someone you wanted to be around. There are some sources that say that Candy did talk to someone about the abuse at some point. She had confided to a friend at school that she was being sexually abused. It's unclear whether Candy meant for this information to remain entirely confidential, or if she secretly hoped the information would make its way to the right person. But as was the right thing to do, that friend confided in an adult at the school. But rather than call law enforcement or protective services, the school contacted Candy's mother. And to some, that might seem like the right thing to do to contact the child's mother and report that the man in the home may be sexually abusing her daughter. But then, they didn't know Becky Lee. Becky promptly removed Candy from that school and moved her to another. I can't imagine what life at home must have been like after that. Candy never told another soul. She carried her burden in silence and tried her hardest to maintain any appearance of normalcy from the outside. Candy's friend Mamie described Candy to me as a shy extrovert. If she didn't really know you, she might keep pretty quiet. But once she was among friends, she was boisterous and outgoing and loud and loved to laugh. She was truly amazing, you know. She um, would walk into a room and it would get vibrant, you know. Like, people would want to say, hey, how are you, and um, just make conversation with her. Uh, her favorite color was orange. Candace was a beautiful spirit. She was the one, she was the type of 
little girl that you always wanted to be around. But even some of her closest friends always knew that something was off. She never talked to them about the abuse directly. But both Tiffany and Mamie told me that Candy wrote poetry that was out of this world. She loved listening to music, and she, she wrote amazing poems. She could write, like, the stuff she wrote from the heart is stuff that you could read and just bust into tears because you knew it was real. You know, like, she just, she had amazing writing skills. And, and it was through her poetry, Mamie says, that you could tell Candy had been hurt badly. She would make offhanded remarks to her close friends about knowing that she was going to die soon. When her favorite song by Three Doors Down would play, Candy would practically scream the verse, because I'm a loser and sooner or later you know I'll be dead. Now whether she could have predicted what would have actually happened to her, or just that the lifestyle would kill her one day, we'll never know. But Mamie thinks that Candy did. Being a teenage girl is hard enough. Imagine saturating that with a mixture of emotional, physical, and sexual abuse fueled by drug addiction might become more than any girl could bear. My sister tried to keep me out of a lot of things. She just wanted to make sure that I was okay. Um, she was let down so much that I guess she got used to it, but... Um, it got to the point to where I remember that the day that she died, she was talking about killing herself. And, um, you know, I got mad at her and I was like, well, for what? You know, you're being selfish. And she said she was tired of hurting, but she didn't want to tell me what was going on. So maybe I understand how those who didn't actually know what happened to Candy in the early morning hours of May 9th, 2003, might willingly accept the notion that Candy accidentally or as some suspected intentionally ended her life via drug of her choice. But then there are those like Detective David Campbell of Lufkin PD that know that the easiest answer to a case isn't always the right one. And the right one isn't always the easiest one to accept. It had been almost four months since first responders pulled Candy's lifeless body from the Lee's trailer home on Condit Lane in Pollock, Texas. Four months since the coroner had ruled Candy's death as an accidental overdose. That September, Detective David Campbell had been selected to take part in the local ATF Project Safe Neighborhoods Task Force. Project Safe Neighborhoods was launched in 2001 as an initiative to reduce gang violence and gun crimes. The goal was to bring together federal, state, tribal, and local law enforcement officials and prosecutors and community leaders with the goal of identifying the most pressing violent crime problems in their community and to develop comprehensive solutions to address them through a combination of enforcing existing gun laws and prevention and deterrence efforts. As the sergeant of CID... Detective Campbell was sitting in on his first debriefing with an informant, along with the U.S. attorney, the local prosecutor, and several other members of the task force. The very first Project Safe Neighborhood gun case that I sat in on a debriefing on with the U.S. attorney's office was with Sheriff Maddox from Sabine County and his chief deputy, and they brought a guy over, and uh, the supervising agent was out of the ATF office in Tyler named uh, Jim Parker. 
And Lisa Flournoy was the prosecutor that was working part-time at the U.S. Attorney's Office of the Eastern District there in Lufkin. And it was Lisa, that guy, his attorney, Sheriff Maddox, his chief deputy, and Malcolm Bales. And we, were, we wrapped up the interview on the information he was giving us. As the meeting with the informant was wrapping up, the question was asked as to whether there were any other crimes in the area that he thought they should be looking into. And Malcolm asked him, he said, is there any other case, you know, violent crime, something really bad that's happened in East Texas in our area here that you think we need to be looking into? And, and the guy's name was Wimpy Wise, Richard Wise. Wimpy said, somebody needs to look into death that girl at Johnny Lee's house. He said, there ain't no way in hell you can push enough meth yourself in a syringe to kill yourself. So men, this other guy tried one night we were in October and we were going to see how much we could do before we passed out. And we, and we passed out. And, and then we're asleep for like a day and a half and then woke up and then we're awake for like three days. He said, you'll pass out when you're pushing it yourself. He said, it would take somebody else pushing a bunch in you to kill you. And I'd be damned if he wasn't right. That's what it wound up. When it all was said and done, that's exactly what happened. I just had to put the pieces together. Detective Campbell knew there had always been something about that case that didn't seem quite right. It wasn't just the people that were involved. Let's be honest, it was mainly the people that were involved. But it wasn't just the people that were involved. It was everything about it. So when the U.S. attorney asked him to get with the police chief to see if he could look into it, Detective Campbell didn't hesitate. Well, what happened during that interview with with Wimpy, uh, Malcolm asked me if I knew about it, and I said, I know something about it. He said, well, can you get with Chief Brazel and see if he'll let you look into this? Yeah. He made a few contacts and got his hands on the case file for Candace Alexander that contained one statement from Johnny Lee, the crime scene photos, and the autopsy photos. Johnny Lee's statement was that he'd gone out to crank his truck at about 6.30 a.m. to take the girls to school when he'd found Candy's body under the truck. According to Johnny Lee, he drug her body out from under the truck, realized she was dead, and carried her body into the house. Becky Lee called 911. But they'd never interviewed Becky Lee. And the 911 call sure didn't sound like that of a panicked or grieving mother. Now, I'm not one to immediately call into question someone's demeanor during an emergency situation. I typically reserve that kind of judgment for a later time and only if necessary. The reason for that is that no single person in this world reacts exactly as another or sometimes even exactly how society says they should in an emergency situation. Some people panic. Some people don't. Some people go into shock. And some people just shut down altogether. There's not a single person out there who can say with 100% confidence exactly how they would react in any given situation unless they've been in that situation. But this 911 call, well, this 911 call sounded like a woman who could have been equally annoyed by her neighbor's cow blocking her driveway and irritated that she might be late for work because of it. Detective Campbell reviewed the crime scene photos. They resembled just about any other meth house he'd ever seen before. The conditions of the trailer were deplorable. There was clutter and clothes and trash strewn about and stacked upon. Every surface was covered in grime and layered with dust and residue. The only decent spot in the whole house seemed to be in the corner of the kitchen, where they kept all their Pyrex dishes and coffee filters for cooking meth. 
It was the crime scene photos of Candy's body and the autopsy photos that caught and held his attention. Because those photos told a very different story than an accidental overdose. Had Malcolm Bells not asked that one question at the end of that debriefing, I would have never got access to the file folder and they had the pictures. Once they had the pictures, I knew something was very, very wrong. Because here was this little girl. Her silky brown hair was filled with dirt and pine needles and debris. Her soft skin and clothes smudged with soil and smeared with motor oil. And her whole body covered in oddly placed abrasions. Scratches that resembled fingernail marks, and bruising, both linear and circular, with very distinct patterns consistent with being struck by an object of some sort. She had a large abrasion on her nose and blood in her nostrils, an ominous indicator of being struck in the face. The autopsy report revealed that the amount of meth in the bloodstream of her tiny 5 foot 3, 92 pound frame was more than enough to kill four 150 pound grown men. Additional examination and photos taken after the body had been cleaned revealed one single injection site surrounded by the unmistakable pattern of bruising left by four fingers and a thumb. The totality of the physical examination, the talk screen, and the before and after photos from the autopsy told Detective Campbell that what happened to Candy wasn't simply accidental. It wasn't benign or merely unkind. No. What happened to this little girl was violent, cruel even, and lethal. And there was every indication that this little girl had put up one hell of a fight. So Detective Campbell took what he had learned, including the photos, to the police chief. So I went to Chief Brazel, Chief Brazel said, the only thing I ask is that you do, that you have the Texas Rangers involved or at least on board, the FBI agent on board, and you give me everything, you, you, and you figure out what happened to this kid. Because I showed him the pictures that they took of the crime scene and of Candace. And he said, this isn't, this isn't an intentional overdose. Something really bad happened to this kid. And with the chief's blessing, Detective Campbell began his journey down the rabbit hole that would consume the next two years of his life, one that would become increasingly strange and complex but that would eventually open the public's eyes to what they could have seen, should have seen, all along. He said, you do, he told me, just do what you do and make me proud, Jethro, that's what he called me. I said, you know I'm not going to half-ass do it, you know I'm going to go all out. And I did, two years and three months, until it was over. The first step Detective Campbell knew he had to take on this journey was to get Johnny Lee out of the way. The informant from the debriefing had been extremely helpful in telling him who to talk to, but bad things happened to people when Johnny Lee was involved. So he knew that none of those people were going to talk until Johnny Lee was no longer a threat. That meant getting him in jail and ensuring he wasn't coming out anytime soon. Detective Campbell had a pretty good idea where he could start. On May 9, 2003, Johnny Lee was still on parole from his last stint in prison. When law enforcement was called to the home, they'd discovered a pistol in the home, 
the sheriff's department had written up a warrant for a felon in possession of a firearm, but it had never actually been filed. When Dawn Stribling was responding to the call, she saw Johnny Lee run out and put some stuff in the woods. And so after Johnny, she kept driving, Johnny ran back out and got in his truck and left. So she turned around and came back and went in the woods, and it was one of those little igloo coolers that you can push the buttons on the side and flip the top over. And it had red phosphorus, iodine, crystals, uh, pill dough, and methyl in it. It had all the components of the cook, all the catalysts. Uh, and so they were able to get a search warrant, and that's when they found the pistol. They found a pistol in the house that day. Well, Johnny was a convicted felon. He was still on parole. So she got a warrant for felon in possession of a firearm, but she never had the thing entered. It was still in her file. It was never entered TCIC, NCIC. And I don't know why, Dawn, I never asked her, but I don't know why she didn't call his parole officer. But they never served the warrant. So Detective Campbell got in touch with the parole board and got them to issue a parole warrant. Once Johnny Lee was in federal custody, Campbell knew he'd be free to roam around and start talking to people without Johnny Lee interfering. He started by interviewing Becky Lee, since no one else had up until then. He actually interviewed her multiple times. Each interview became more and more confrontational on Becky's part, and each interview was filled with more ranting accusations comparable to conspiracy theories than the one before it. The sheriff had killed Candy. It was her cousin that killed Candy. Everyone else had killed Candy except for Becky or Johnny Lee. Now, Detective Campbell knew he wasn't going to get anything from Becky that even resembled the truth. But that wasn't the point. The point was to let Becky wrap herself up in her stories so tight that she couldn't get out. And to get it all on camera. And in between interviews, undercover narcotics officers had been interacting with Becky on a regular basis and gathering more and more evidence of her role in Johnny Lee's family-owned business. We had some undercover narcotics guys doing stuff with Becky. That we got her wrapped up in a bunch of deliveries, and uh, we were able to get her in jail and interview her some more. And well, she's just a twisted mind, just sick-minded. I mean, she had a bad childhood. There were a lot of things happened to her that should never happen to a kid. But that doesn't mean you have to do it to others. During their last interview with Becky, they confronted her with the evidence they had of her dealing. She denied everything, of course, and they ultimately decided to let her walk out of the station that day with strict instructions to turn herself in the next morning. They predicted correctly that she would skip out. So they issued a new warrant for her arrest and set out to track her down. And it wasn't long before they found her hiding out at her ex-husband Kester's house. Kester and this other woman had four girls. They were probably from ages two to seven. And when we went over to get her out of that house over there in Hurdy, those girls were just in panties sitting in the front yard pulling up wild onions and eating them. We went back in the house and looked. The only thing in that house, uh, they didn't have any running water. They had electricity, but there wasn't any food in there. But, the, but there was cold beer in the refrigerator. So, And CPS came, took those four girls, got them out of there, uh, went through the whole legal process, and they were adopted by a family in Nacogdoches. Nobody ever remembers them or thinks about them, but I think they got saved from a similar life and similar fate. Becky and Johnny Lee were indicted by a grand jury for murder charges in July of 2004. With both Becky and Johnny Lee behind bars, 
Detective Campbell was able to convince even more people to talk. And boy, did they talk. You know, as far as putting a case together, I mean, it was just, there were so many dang rumors out there, you'd be remiss as an investigator if you didn't investigate all of them. And then most of them fell all to pieces because it's, you're dealing with people who are all working with an altered state of mind because they say hi continuously. And just the, the trying to wrap your head around how these people live. But the real break in the case came when a man by the name of Elton Reese decided to start talking. Elton had been implicated by Johnny and Becky early on. And Detective Campbell had already heard from at least one source that Elton may have more than just an idea of what happened at the Lees' home on May 9, 2003. The informant from the Project Safe Neighborhoods debriefing had recalled that about three days after Candy died, he and a friend had been hanging out at a local marina when Elton came racing up in his old El Camino. He was all messed up and asking for a place to lay low for a while because he didn't want to get caught up in the murder of that girl. So once Becky and Johnny were in custody... It was time to track Elton down, too. Detectives learned that he'd been working in Virginia, so the FBI and Texas Rangers involved in the case worked out a deal with the state police there. They flew out to Tennessee and had Elton brought over from Virginia. They took him into custody there in Tennessee and returned him to Texas, where he was also charged for murder. Much to their dismay, he had nothing to say to them. He wouldn't say anything for almost seven months. But eventually, something changed his mind. And thank goodness it did. Because the story he told turned out to be the link between every other piece of credible evidence that Detective Campbell had and would gather. And it turned out to be the undoing of Becky and Johnny Lee. Getting Elton Reitz in custody was a big deal. Once we got Elton in custody, now why it took him seven months to break, I don't know. Other than he figured, yeah, I better start talking. I'm going to wind up going for the rest of my life, too. Elton really filled in the gaps, to be honest. He filled in a lot of the gaps that we had in regards to the time frame of when all this happened, um, you know, how it all transpired. By the end of October 2005, almost two and a half years had gone by since Candace Alexander's brief existence in this world had come to an end. Two years and two months of that time spent chasing down leads and closing loopholes in order to build a case to hold those responsible for Candy's death accountable. The trial against 54-year-old Johnny and 37-year-old Becky Lee would last little more than a week. But by the time it was over, the prosecution had presented a battery of witnesses, each testifying to their own piece of the maddening jigsaw puzzle that had become this case. As each witness testified as each puzzle piece snapped into place. The picture of what happened to Candy, or rather what was done to Candy, would become clearer and clearer, and the pictures of Candy that had drawn Detective Campbell in would finally be explained. During multiple days of testimony, Elton Reese sat on the stand and recalled a version of events that took place in the early morning hours of May 9, 2003. A version of events that was both heartbreaking and horrifying. According to Elton, He'd gone to the Lee's house on Condit Road because he knew Johnny Lee was going to be doing a burn. In other words, he'd be cooking up a fresh batch of meth. The first time he went over, it wasn't quite done. So Elton left and came back a short while later because he was hurting in a bad way. He told the jury that he'd been sitting in the living room waiting when he started to hear commotion and fighting coming from one of the bedrooms. 
He couldn't make out what was being said. But suddenly, Candy exploded out of the bedroom, her face filled with panic. She ran across the living room and out the front door, followed quickly by Becky and Johnny. As he watched through the front door, he saw Candy dive under a pickup truck. He watched as Johnny dragged Candy out from under the truck, kicking and screaming. And he watched as they carried Candy back into the bedroom they'd come from. Elton had showed up earlier in the night because he knew Johnny was doing a burn that night on Thursday. And Johnny told him he didn't have it yet. And Elton was, he was needing it pretty bad. So he went back over there. And when he got there, that's when they were fighting in the house. Candace busted out of that door and ran out and dove under the pickup truck. That's why she had all the oil and grease on her hands and feet and on her arms and legs. Because she was holding on to the dang drive shaft. And, and if you look at the pictures, you can see on the Iliac crest, uh, on the interior, you know, the front side of her body, you can literally see the imprint of the dead gum belt where Johnny had her by the back of the pants and pulling. And then right above the, the mons pubis where the, you know, the pubic area is, you could see the seam of the dang pants that left this bruise. And then you could see those button-up pants where they came down. I mean, every bit of that left a bruise. Uh, so it was it was obvious, you know, somebody was pulling on her pants hard enough that it it bruised everything across there. The both Iliac crest. I mean, it was just ungodly the amount of damage on her body uh, for it to have just been an accidental overdose. For a few moments after they closed the door. Elton could hear screaming and fighting, and then, silence. Within a minute or two, Johnny and Becky emerged from the bedroom, with Becky scolding Johnny. I told you it was too much. They never paid Elton any mind. It was almost like he wasn't even there. Once they'd gone into another room, he went into the bedroom Candy was in. I mean, he wasn't in the room when they shot her up, but he said it only took just a matter of seconds, and she went from fighting after they had pulled her out from the truck and taken her back inside into that bedroom. They closed the door, and then it got real quiet. And then Johnny and Becky came out arguing, and Johnny said, why the hell did you give her that much? I told you she couldn't handle that much. Well, what, he, what they did is they shot her up with straight meth oil off the cookie he was doing. And you could see where you could actually see the needle mark in the antecubital space of that arm, and that's in the bend of the elbow, and, and you could see the xiphoid bruising where they were holding her arm. Once upon a time, long before crystal meth had taken control over his life, Elton had been a paramedic for the local fire department. So he took one look at Candy, and he knew she was dead. Elton went in there, because in the 60s, Elton was a an EMT for Lufkin. He worked for the fire department. And he went in there and she was dead. He, he, he got out of there. He left. And then that's when they said, that was like 4.30 in the morning, between 3.30 and 4.30. Elton hauled tail out of there. But he wouldn't tell anyone what he'd just seen. He wouldn't even notify anyone that a little girl was dead. By the time crime scene detectives took their first photo later that day, Candy's body showed fixed lividity. Lividity, or liver mortis, is the term for the process by which the body's blood begins to settle under the influence of gravity after the heart has stopped. In other words, once the heart has stopped and is no longer pumping blood throughout the body, the blood vessels begin to break down, and the blood has nowhere to go but down. 
so it will pool in the areas of the body that are closest to the ground. It typically appears as a bluish-purple or reddish-purple splotchy area across those areas. Lividity is one of the key factors in determining time of death, positioning at the time of death, and even whether the body has been moved since the time of death. The process usually begins about 30 minutes after the heart has stopped, but is typically not visible to the human eye until around two hours after. It can be partially altered up to six hours after death, but typically after the six-hour mark, it begins to become fixed. And after about 12 hours, the pattern of discoloration will remain the same even after the body is shifted. The lividity in Candy's body was so fixed that she had the perfect imprint of a necklace on her back where the blood had not settled. The exact swirling pattern of the chain itself, the clasp and the pendant all intricately traced into her skin just near the rose tattoo on her shoulder given to her by Johnny Lee. The same tattoo he'd given to Candy's older sister before her. The same tattoo he'd given to Becky. The lividity at the time of the photographs versus the time of the 911 call showed that hours had passed between the time of her actual death and the time that Becky Lee decided to report it. One of those photos showed Becky Lee's bare leg right in the middle of the crime scene and right next to Candy's body. And it was notable how clean her bare foot and leg were, considering that she had been equally involved in the struggle outside. You see, after they killed Candy, Becky and Johnny knew they would have to report her death sooner or later. But more importantly to them, they knew they would have to clean up all the evidence of the illegal meth lab they were running out of their home. She died May 9th, 2003. It was a Friday. Uh, it was called in about 8, 8.05 in the morning to our 911. But it had happened at about 3.30 to 4.30, the early morning hours on May the 9th. And what they did was they... They just left her in a bedroom while they disassembled the meth lab and hauled it off. And then after they got the house cleaned up and hauled off all the damn meth lab and all that mess, that's when they called 911. Or she, Becky, called 911. Perhaps even more somber and morbid than that was that they woke up younger sister Tiffany and forced her to help with the cleanup. One thing, you know, I really remember is the day that it happened that um, he woke me up for school and was telling me, hey, get up, you're late for school. And I walk in the living room like, I don't want to go to school because they didn't make me go. And my sister's, my sister, <laughs> um, you know, this still haunts me. My sister was first sitting in the recliner, and then Johnny picked her up and put her in his hands, and laid her on the floor. I don't know how long it took them to clean up the meth lab, but they didn't try to do anything. Once they got the meth lab disassembled and hauled off, they picked up Candy's body from the bed and laid her on the living room floor and that was where she would stay until first responders carried her away. Becky Lee had showered and had gone about her business, and Tiffany merely watched as her mother and Johnny Lee disregarded her sister's body lying there in the living room floor, walking around and stepping over it if necessary, as if she wasn't even there. They 
laid her in the living room and I had to walk across her body to go to their bedroom back and forth until I got scared and I was like, hey, y'all need to cover her up. And you know, the whole time I was mad because she had my brand new clothes on. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know. <laughs> in addition to Elton Reese's testimony, several other witnesses, friends of Becky's in fact, testified that Becky had told each of them that Candy had died from a meth overdose. And she told them this before the toxicology report was even available to confirm this. Within days after Candy's death, she had contacted one of them wanting a ride to the funeral home to view the body. Those friends had informed Detective Campbell and testified to the court that Becky had instructed them to see if they could spot a mark on the inside of Candy's right arm. In exchange for his testimony, the murder charges against Elton Reese were dropped. Only about a year later, he died. It seems that cancer had taken its toll on his body, and due to the many years of his crystal meth addiction and subsequent lifestyle, for Elton, there was no way back. But while Elton's testimony had given the what and the how of what was done to Candy, prosecutors also needed to show the why for all of it to make sense. According to the testimonies of multiple family members and friends, at the time of Candy's death, she'd been splitting her time between her biological father and her mother, and she'd grown weary from the back-and-forth situation between equally unstable parents. One of Johnny Lee's adult daughters testified that she'd seen Candy using drugs in the bedroom before she was even a teenager, and that Candy had confessed to her that she was extremely depressed. She also testified about her own abusive childhood under Johnny Lee, Candy had become fed up with the sexual abuse and the drugs, and she wanted out. That night before she was killed, she was overheard by a family friend and fellow meth user saying, I'm going to tell everybody. But she would never get the chance, because Becky and Johnny Lee would silence Candy forever. Yeah, I think she, the best I could determine between 11 and 12 when she, he started giving her mail. And that's what the whole thing, I think, blew up, the blow-up was about. She's wanting to go to law enforcement about about the cooking the meth, about having to, you know, have sex with him to get the meth and all that crap. By the time it was all over, on November 1st, 2005, the jury found Becky and Johnny Lee guilty on all charges. During the sentencing phase, even after all the mitigating circumstances were presented, it took the jury only two hours to sentence both of them to life in prison. Becky Lee had shown emotion only twice during the whole trial, once on the first day of trial when the pictures of Candy's body were shown, and once at her sentencing. Johnny Lee only shook his head while his own daughter testified about his abuse towards her and showed little reaction to his own sentencing. After the trial was over, the Lufkin Police Department took up a collection from the community in order to purchase a headstone for Candy's grave and allowed Candy's sisters to choose a photo and the inscription. Lieutenant Harold Cottle, he's the one that spearheaded the drive. The, the, um, we did like a fundraiser uh, to get her a headstone. She didn't have a headstone. And then I got with Amanda and Tiffany and 
to let them choose what we were going to put on it or what we would have the uh, headstone company put on it. So they got, so that they would have a say in the final resting place of their sister they lost. What she went through that, what she went through way before that, I remember one of the jurors told me, when he was a jury foreman, and he said, they killed that girl, they killed Candace years before her life actually ended. I said, you're very right about that. It's something Detective Campbell has thought about often. He spent two and a half years so focused on the circumstances of her death and holding those responsible for it accountable. Yet so many questions were left unanswered about how it was allowed to happen and who was ultimately accountable for this child's life. It really bothers me that, you know, that nothing was at first was taken, you know, serious about this. And the way I see it, the way I actually break it down is that we swore an oath to be someone's, if not a lot of people's, guardian angels. You know, protect those who can't be protected, protect those who can't protect themselves, and help those who are in a bad way. I mean, essentially, that's the oath. We have to do that. If you didn't mean it, you should have never put your hand on that Bible and raised your hand and taken that oath. You swore an oath to God. You swore an oath to the people. You were bound by your words and the oath to do this job, no matter how bad it hurts you. Even to your death, you have to do it. That is the part about this case that troubled me the most. And then I'm going to tell you something. There is a word that we see prosecutors use, and you see it all over the country. And they, you know, they'll say after some big case goes to trial on some heinous crime that, you know, maybe there'll be closure. There's never closure on stuff like this. There's never closure for the family. There's never closure for the police officers that work it. There's never closure for the detectives that get involved. Uh, that It doesn't go away. I mean, there is no closure. How do you close something like You don't. Just with time, it gets better. I mean, for the first seven or eight years on her Candace's birthday, I went out there and put flowers on her, on her tombstone. In Detective Campbell's opinion, and mine as well, Candy's death was preventable. There were those in the meth circle who knew exactly what was going on and failed to do anything because they didn't want to cut off their meth supply. But then there were those outside of the meth culture. And what did they have to lose? Yeah, I think there were some adults that knew what was going on. Well, particularly in the meth world, they, they certainly knew what was going on. And I think that there were some, there were some adults, and I'm not going to say where, um, but I, you know, I think they knew. They just probably didn't know the right way to go about saying something. There were so many things that should have been noticed but weren't. Or that may have been noticed but were ignored. Candy was underdeveloped for the age of 15. She was malnourished and depressed. And both she and Tiffany were excessively truant from school. I mean, nobody was checking up on why she wasn't ever at school. I mean, why are they missing 80 days of school a year? That's nuts. Somebody should be checking on these kids. That, to me, is a red flag for abuse, or there's something going on where they don't want them them in school. Yet no one ever bothered to check up on why. No one ever bothered to ask, is everything okay? 
And sometimes that's all it takes. One person to ask the right question. One person to even start asking questions. One person to follow up. One person could have been the difference between life and death for Candy. Sometimes you can sense things, you just can't put a finger on it. And people that don't do what we do, you know, they, 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 they're going to be somewhat apprehensive. But I think now, you're, you look back, we're 15 years or more, you know, past this, you know, Candace's death. And they're way more proactive in reporting things, even if it turns out to be nothing. But they're, they're way more proactive in reporting. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. I mean, that's something that should have been done years ago. And, you know, there were a lot of people that just, they just didn't want to get involved. You know, I just didn't want to get involved. Well, crap. Nobody gets involved. We keep having kids die. You know, when I first sat down with Detective Campbell to view the crime scene photos, the photos of Candy's battered body on the filthy floor of that trailer home, I was suddenly struck by how beautiful she was. And not just beautiful in the way that all children are beautiful, but really beautiful. Completely drained of life, covered in grease and dirt and debris, this girl was beautiful. And I was again struck by the reality that this beauty was probably never even realized by the people who should have appreciated it the most. And if it was, they just exploited it. And I was saddened by the notion that we'll never get to know who she was. Not that any of us really ever know who we were at 15. But we'll never be able to realize her potential, to know who she could have been or would have been. We'll never know if had she had a fighting chance, if and how she could have succeeded in life and contributed back to her community. I just, I feel like I would have traded places with her. She had more, she, she had more to offer the world. <laughs> she would have been something. I did ask Detective Campbell, though, if out of this epic failure by the community and tragic loss of a life, was there anything good that came about so that Candy's death was not in vain? And his response, to me, seemed to be one of hope. A lot of things changed because of that case. Because of what happened to Candace. And they changed for the better. Most everybody, or hardly anyone, remembers the four little girls, the four blonde-headed little girls in their panties, eating wild onions, growing in the front yard across from Hurdy Park. They didn't become victims of this, too. They were to begin with because both their parents were methamphetamine addicts and alcoholics, and that's what drove them. These children, these four girls were caught in that. And I think one other great thing that came from this was that Lieutenant Chupaka and I and the CPS workers were able to intervene and get them out of that. And then a loving family adopted all four of those girls and gave them the life they deserved, not the life that they were being handed or force-fed. And to me, that is a great, big victory. Huge victory. The awareness about what was happening to these children in these meth homes, the awareness, the publicity from that, you know, that opened a lot.
lot of people's eyes to what the hell was going on in our communities. I know for a fact that her death was not in vain. And that's the very one of the very reasons I'm talking to you about it right now. Her voice needs to be heard. And when I write the book, I've already got the title picked out. I've had it picked out for a long time. And I don't want any of this to even remotely sound like that this is about me. This isn't about me. This is about a girl that died when she was 15 in a very cruel manner. She deserves better than that. And I'm going to tell her story until I don't have any breath left in my lungs. The moral of this story is that it does take a village to raise a child. A child has to be loved by many, but cared for by all in order to survive and to thrive. We are the village, all of us. Teachers, doctors, police, friends, families, neighbors, and sometimes complete strangers. As members of our village, it's our duty to protect and provide for a child should their parents fail. There can't be a question of should we be responsible. We must be responsible. We have a responsibility to be part of a solution to any problems in our village and an opportunity to be part of something so much bigger than ourselves. The role of each community member is profoundly important. But in the end, it's not just for your sake or just for the sake of the child. It's for everyone's sake. If you suspect or have knowledge that a child is being abused or neglected in Texas, you can call the Texas Abuse Hotline at 1-800-252-5400. You can also make a report online at texasabusehotline.org. That's txabusehotline.org. Outside of Texas, you can visit childwelfare.gov for a list of state child abuse and neglect reporting numbers because you could be the one that makes the difference to a child in your village. That's all for this episode of Lone Star Law and Disorder. Lone Star Law and Disorder is an independent podcast researched, written, and produced by me. It's available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and probably any other platform of your choice. While you're there, do me the favor of leaving me a rating and review. It really does help. You can find me on Facebook and join the Lone Star Law and Disorder discussion group, and on Twitter, at Lone Star Law Pod, or you can shoot me an email at lonelaw18 at gmail.com. See you next time.